Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds Podcast. My name is Desiree, and today I'm joined by Moritz, another Green Minds host, to interview Cody, the CEO of Brimstone, a startup innovating a carbon negatives event. This episode is part of a two-part series on building decarbonization, and in this conversation, we focus firstly on Brimstone's founding story and Cody's background, and then we go deeper into the methods of cement decarbonization, Brimstone's differentiation, and the talent shortage willing to work in a traditionally overlooked industry. Let's dive in. To kick things off, can you just briefly describe your path to date and what led you to cement decarbonization? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a little bit of the long version. I've, you know, for a really long time, I've sort of been interested in problems that impact the quality of life of humans or non-human animals or impact biodiversity or wilderness. I think all of those things have a lot of value. And really since like sort of my first recollection of like really thinking thinking about this, I started in high school. I, you know, grew up in Seattle in the United States and, you know, from just about everywhere in the city, you could look up and see Mount Rainier, which is this sort of amazing giant volcano, you know, 14,000 feet, Seattle's at sea level. It, it just looks enormous from from where you are. And, you know, my dad at one point had climbed it. I was, you know, as a kid, I was like, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. And also the most beautiful thing ever. And I really saw there was like a lot of value and natural beauty. At the same time, you know, growing up in a city, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, different levels of wealth and sort of social problems like that. And these all seemed like just like interesting problems and things that were really worth my time to work on. That always just like that sort of thing motivated me a lot more than, I don't know, trying to maximize my personal wealth or, you know, something like that. It just, it just, I was really, really interested in those problems. And I thought, yeah. Thinking about how they how sort of complex systems interact was just really interesting to me. I don't know that certainly back then I wasn't particularly good at it, but I, you know, I, and I don't know that I am today. But it was it was great to it was just very interesting, very engaging, and that's like I think the most that we can hope hope from our work is really really engaging work. So yeah, I you know have been interested in a variety of these sorts of problems. You know, climate being really the first one I was interested in. After you know somehow I watched an inconvenient truth in high school, I think, or middle school, I forget, high school. And I was like, wow, Mount Rainier is being threatened. This is horrible. Uh, And and then that's kind of like what I was first interested in. And then I kind of switched around a little bit. I learned a lot about HIV and how that has, there's, you know, no real, there's lots of treatment, but no cure for HIV and how that disproportionately affects, you know, poor people, marginalized people. Got really interested in that for a while. And kind of switched between those those two issues. And then in college, I traveled in India, and you know my eyes were open to like what pollution really could look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, gr- growing up in the United States, I hadn't really ever experienced smog before. Mm-hmm. I like I had experienced some smog, but I hadn't really experienced wow. smog. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. I, I the the closest it's come is like I I'd experienced like wildfire smoke in in the western United States and you know that was awful and it lasted for a week and then I looked at like sort of the air air quality numbers for what I was experiencing and realized that in places like Delhi it's like 365 days a year it's like there's a wildfire basically mm-hmm. and also wastewater treatment felt like it you know a really big really big issue to me like when I was traveling in India and that sort of thing and I came back I didn't really know effective way to you know work on these problems I was just sort of generally interested in all of these things pollution problems climate problems whatever I was also anxious about not being able to like I so I, I kind of wanted to be a professor I was like okay I can study a variety of problems and think about solutions but I was really anxious about the job market being a professor I understand like I I really wanted to live like in or close to the mountains or in nature. I, you know, heard that you don't get much choice when you're a professor. It's very, very hard to 
you know, get a job where you want. And I was very anxious. So I sort of en ultimately ended up applying and, and going to a MD PhD dual degree program. Cause I like in my, you know, strange lizard brain, I, I, I thought that, you know, if I didn't get a job as a professor, I could, you know, be a medical doctor if I had that degree yeah. and, and, st and still make some impact. And so I started that program and I actually dropped out like eight weeks after starting it because I was just like, I'm going, like, I, you know, la I happened to have all of the credits for like a, applying to an MD PhD or like a medical degree, but I like throughout my entire college experience, I was like not interested in it. I didn't plan on it. And mm -hmm. I was like, I don't like this, you know, I, and, and one of the, one of the biggest reasons that I decided to drop out was just like, I didn't feel useful. Mm -hmm. So it was like, again, like for me, like, like thinking about big systemic problems is like the most engaging. And I was like, well, there's zero chance that like, I'm actually a better doctor than like the 60% of applicants who didn't get in to medical school mm -hmm. behind me. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, I'm like my marginal value of is, is zero being mm -hmm. in medical school. I'm just like, I, I, I just sort of, I, I felt, I, I just felt really useless and I just didn't really like the learning style either. You know, I wanted to think sort of more globally and systemically and it just didn't quite work for, for my brand. you know, very grateful to all the physicians that have ever worked with me and it's definitely an, an important and necessary job. And I don't think that any doctor doesn't realize that, right. You know, yeah, and society yeah. certainly realizes that too. So that's yeah. great. I, I'm not making that criticism, but it was not for me. Yeah. So I dropped out and I was like, okay, I, I want to work on something where I do feel useful. And the first thing that came to my head is like, okay, I want to work on something that other people are not working on so that my, mar my marginal impact is, is high. And I also want to work on something that is, you know, it, it, important for, you know, global environmental issues or just sort of, you know, a, a, a large global problem. And, you know, the first thing I, you know, I, 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 I was already in, like, I, it was a pretty easy transition to sort of get back into my PhD from like my MD PhD. So like the first thing I did was like, well, let me look around at, at, you know, the research that was being done at that university. And I, you know, looked around and I saw a few different labs that were interesting. I saw some lab that was like trying to turn CO2 into fuels to make yeah. like a circular CO2 economy. I saw another mm -hmm. lab that was trying to make like hydrogen. I saw another lab that was, you know, trying to make all kinds of things using biology. And then I saw another lab that was working on like wastewater treatment for applications in low-income countries. And I was like, wow, these are all super interesting projects. That wastewater one, like that <laughs> is, like I was thinking back to my days in India and I was like, wow, that's a really big problem. I don't know if anyone working on like wastewater treatment for low-income countries. Like that's you know, just sort of I mean, intuitively, I was like, this this seems like mm -hmm. the thing I, I would feel very useful here. Mm -hmm. So I started working on that and it was great. I found myself back in India like four times, you know, installing wastewater treatment systems that we had developed in, in, in lab. It was a ton of like all the travel and, and thinking about that problem was really fun, you know, really appreciated. Think fondly about that time. And then I was like, okay, kind of got halfway through my PhD and I was like, well, geez, it'd be great to like try to, like make an impact and at that point like the the bill and melinda gates foundation was funding that research work mm -hmm. on the wastewater treatment and mm -hmm. i been talking to folks at the bill and melinda gates foundation and one of the things that they're really clear on i really value about the gates foundation is they have like a really strong theory of change mm -hmm. and they're quite convincing and like sort of like there's there's two ways right there's there's two ways you can change the world you can either try to change the you know, global economic slash political system so that it, it values things that it doesn't value now that you maybe think it should value. Mm -hmm. Or you can start a business and try to make something that basically makes the thing that you want to be valuable, valuable. Right? Yeah. Uh, I was looked at those two options. Like, I agree. Those are kind of the options. And I'm not an economist. I'm not a political scientist. I'm, you know, very like I have zero ability and zero desire to be a you know politician sounds really hard I, I just don't have the skills so I was like okay well that narrows down the list considerably 
I made try to start a company. The first thing that I did was like looked at this wastewater treatment mm -hmm. technology. I was like, well, obvious thing is let's try to start a company with this, right? It's yeah. we're installing it, it's treating wastewater, it's doing a good enough job. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is so the first thing I did is I did something called a techno-economic analysis, which you and your listeners may be familiar with, but basically, you know, take the the technology that's being developed at the lab scale and say, okay, how much could I reasonably expect this to cost at scale? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I looked at the price of electricity and capital costs and all the normal things that you do with a techno-economic analysis. And I said, this is just the worst idea I have <laughs> ever, ever seen. Hey, this is this wastewater treatment technology is is it's you know not going to help anybody. It's going to make a lot of people poor, mm -hmm. <laughs> even but they already are poor. You know, it's, it's, they're just not going to be able to afford it, right? So, I and I was like, you know, the first thing as a technologist, say, okay, well, is there a reasonable path to this being? Like, could I do some research? And as the answer is kind of no, like mm -hmm. like there's just no way that this could be economical that I can think of. So I said, okay, mm -hmm. well. I'm going to work on something else then. And that was definitely like a harder, harder transition period for sure. And so, so the, the first thing I did, which is kind of, kind of dumb. So I've got background noise. I'm going to close my window was I just, you know, looked at the other projects that I previously looked at and I was like, well, maybe I should work on one of those things. And I started working mm -hmm. on, on making hydrogen from water electrochemically. And then like two years after starting that project, I did the same thing. I was like, well, this is cool. Maybe I'll start a business. Mm -hmm. And I did a techno-economic analysis. I was like, wow, making hydrogen from water is maybe a worse idea than yes. than this wastewater treatment thing. Yeah. Like this is like like I was like, well, it's incredibly cheap to make hydrogen from coal and natural gas. Like I don't like, you know, certainly you can make hydrogen from water, but you know, if I were to start this business, the real hard problem here would be to 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 change the global economy to mm -hmm. to to make this cheaper somehow than making hydrogen from coal or natural gas. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I I decided to abandon that too, and I was kind of walking around sad about how I'd wasted the last five years of my life, and I went you know, pretty soon I went to this talk by a guy named Dave Danielson. And he was working at RPE at the time, which is mm -hmm. the U.S. Advanced Research Project Agency, Energy. It does a lot of funding and energy. And the talk he gave was called like White Spaces in Climate Tech or something mm -hmm. like that. And he was like, look, there's these huge problems that no one's that no one's freaking working on. Mm -hmm. There's cement, steel, aluminum, fertilizer. These are all huge components of climate. And everyone's over there busy working on electric vehicles. But all of these things are the same magnitude as electric vehicles so it'd be great if someone worked on them and i said well that sounds like something that i want to work on let me let me think about that so i first started actually on fertilizer i don't know fertilizer i remember in college at some point you know someone told me that the Haber bosch process consumes like three percent of the world's energy and yeah. I'm like, what's crazy so i was like just like from that memory i was like wow i should think about that mm -hmm. and you start working on that and developed a sort of developed the technology to make hydrogen for the fertilizer industry, which is where most of the most of the emissions come from, making hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And I I to this day I think that's an excellent idea. And some of my some of my friends have actually picked up that idea and have mm -hmm. you know started a company out of it. I think they're, you know, more to be heard about that later. Mm -hmm. I, I, I won't say more, but I think that that I think that that idea is great. But in this whole process of making of thinking about ways to make hydrogen, I realized that the chemistry was that I was thinking about was pretty similar to a chemistry that could work for decarbonizing cement mm -hmm. and cement had a larger emissions profile. So it, like it became more interesting to me. So I pivoted away from hydrogen and into cement. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I met my co-founder, Hugo, who was, you know, working in the same lab that I got my PhD in. And he'd just been an excellent, you know, thought partner and, and, and company building partner the whole time. But yeah, I sort of landed on cement, you know, retrospectively, you know, looking at it, it's like I, I kind of, I came to this in a less rigorous way than I, you know, like to, you know, think about now as my thinking has gotten more sophisticated, but it's really like I wanted to maximize my marginal impact. I wanted to work on a global environmental problem that was big 
So like size of impact, maximizing my marginal impact. And then I want to do something that was tractable, right? I didn't want to just like work on a problem because, because I had a technology that could solve the problem if we all agreed to spend, you know, twice as much money on, on whatever. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that I felt like actually could solve the problem, you know, under today's economic conditions. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, that was a long, a long story, but that's how I got into cement. It. Great. It, yeah. Great. Now, before we maybe dig deeper into what you guys are working on at Brimstone, let's say we take a step back and let's talk a bit about the construction industry and specifically cement. Why, what exactly are we looking at within the industry? Why are the emissions so high? Where is it coming from? And then ultimately also, why do we need to tackle cement as one of the biggest emission sources? Yeah. Great question. So there's, I'm going to give you some data, but I want to acknowledge there's a lot of error bars around all these things and, you know, people never report them and I don't know them off the top of my head, mm-hmm. <laughs> the error bars. I do know the numbers though. So the first thing that I'm going to qualify is that, you know, everyone talks about CO2 emissions and CO2 emissions are only about 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. So you probably he- folks hear a lot of different numbers. Some people quote greenhouse gas emissions, some people quote CO2 emissions, but you know, the numbers have different magnitudes and that's why. So according to the most recent IPCC report, I think cement was responsible for about 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Maybe it was 4.8. In the one before that said it was 5.5%. There's error bars with both of those. Those numbers in real reality are probably about the same. Yeah. And so that equates to seven or eight percent of co2 emissions mm-hmm. so you'll probably see all of those numbers out there the uh, that just put that in, ter- in terms of magnitude right so like the trucking industry is responsible for like four-ish percent of greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. like like passenger vehicles like cars they're responsible for like six-ish percent of greenhouse gas emissions you know planes are responsible for, remember this right like one-ish percent of greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emissions one and a half right so cement is like kind of as big as it gets in terms of a category, right? You can, you know, you you can lump things together into bigger categories if you want. Like you, you can say agriculture, or fertilizer, or construct building materials or whatever, and they all they all get bigger. But the fact of the matter is, is the climate problem is really, really diversified mm-hmm. and there is no silver bullet, as 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 is true with everything. So it yeah, so so if you care about if you care about climate, for example, or maybe you care about decarbonizing transportation or you think electric cars are cool because they decarbonize cars or something, mm-hmm. then you should also care about cement because it's the, it's the same amount of emission. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that you should care more about cement because everyone else cares less about cement. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about your marginal impact, I, I, again, I'm going to quote these numbers off the top of my head, but I looked at a, a PricewaterhouseCoopers study on funding going into climate tech over the last 15 years or so. And I, you know, I calculated for like, you know, different emission sectors, like the dollars of investment per ton of CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. I remember, right. I think that transportation was like 14 and a half dollars per ton of, of, of CO2 emissions in that sector. Energy was like five dollars per ton, mm-hmm. maybe. Cement was like one penny, like one right. cent per ton. Wow. So, like when I, when I think of like, okay, well, how can if you want to work on climate? How can you be useful? And like, there's, you know, and like, it, how, how like, are are you replaceable or not? Like, I think there's not enough people working on climate. Like, no one's really replaceable. But you know, if you want to think in that way, mm-hmm. there are many fewer people working on cement than there are mm-hmm. working on anything else when you normalize to CO two emissions. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, that's the that's yeah, I think why we you know basically why we should we should care about because we care about climate. It's you know as important as anything and very, very underworked on. So how do you decarbonize the cement industry? I think that's like a really interesting contextualizing question to kind of set the set the scene for some of the other questions that we have. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, and you know, the, the tongue-in-cheek answer is, well, of course I don't know. I've never done it yet, but <laughs> I will try to speculate. Uh, <laughs> the, the, so, so let me start with where do the CO2 emissions come from? Yeah. So... 
cement is a really interesting one in that regard because most of the CO2 emissions have nothing to do with energy, mm -hmm. right? So how we make cement today is we make a material called ordinary Portland cement, which is a calcium-based material. And we get all of our calcium from a rock called limestone. Limestone is has the chemical formula calcium carbonate or CaCO3, calcium carbon and three oxygen. Mm -hmm. In order to activate that calcium, you need to heat up that limestone. And when you do heat up that limestone, it will decompose into calcium oxide or lime, which is what we make cement out of, mm -hmm. and CO2. So most of the CO2 emissions actually come from the rock, right? Like the, like the rock itself decomposes into CO2. Mm -hmm. So, and that's about 60% of the emissions from the cement industry. So it, e even if we were to use 100% clean energy in the cement industry, about 60% of the emissions would persist. And 60% of the cement industry is still bigger than airplanes, right? <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a lot of CO2. Yeah. So then the rest of the, the, the rest of the CO2 comes from burning a fuel because you need to, you know, the, the cheapest way to do things is to, to heat this rock up and it'll decompose into CO2 and left. Mm -hmm. That's about 40%, 40% of cement emissions. Okay, so how do we decarbonize that? Let's start with some assumptions, right? So we need to decarbonize this globally because we all share one atmosphere, right? If we just decarbonize this in, you know, UK or Europe, United States, that's great, but it, you know, it doesn't actually really matter that much. It really needs to be decarbonized globally. In my view, like just like the Gates Foundation originally taught me, like there are kind of two ways to do that. We can either change the global economic system mm -hmm. so that we in some way put a price on carbon or or you know do something even more esoteric or we can develop a new technology that makes it cheaper to make cement without co2 emissions mm -hmm. yeah and and the and really the only thing is cheaper with it with the global economic system right if, if a, a bank has the option to finance two different plants and like that's you know those are the only institutions that have enough money to finance cement plants that cost a billion dollars yeah. like, they will choose to finance the one that makes them the most money and mm -hmm. that's going to be the one that makes a cheaper uh, uh, like a lower sure. cost sure. yeah so okay so great let's now say what are all of the strategies to decarbonize cement all right, so I'll just go down the list. So the first strategy to decarbonize cement are are things like efficiency strategies. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what you know, one of the things that the industry looks at is okay, well, why don't we retrofit old plants with like newer burners that use less energy and that sort of thing? If that was done perfectly, right, we could, you know, the global average of energy consumption for per ton of cement is like 3.7 gigajoules. You could probably get it down to three gigajoules. However, right, there's an unknown rebound effect on those efficiency measures. So if we if we do that, it will also have the benefit of making the cement cheaper, and then we'll probably use more cement, and then we might yeah. end up using more energy, and then it's not clear that we'll actually decarbonize anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but we may, right? So I think that's just like, it, it, it's it's good to make things that we need in the world cheaper. So I think this these are good things to do. It's not clear that efficiency measures for cement or really in general are actually decarbonization strategies. Yeah. Because we don't, you know, we don't have clear understandings of the rebound effect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, you know, that's not really a way to decarbonize cement. That's just a way that people talk about. But it is a good thing to do, <laughs> to be clear. So the the next thing would be to blend in something called a supplementary cementitious material. Mm -hmm. Right. So it turns out that ordinary Portland cement can be blended with pretty high to high levels, like even in some cases up to 50% with materials that do chemical reactions with ordinary Portland cement. And these are typically amorphous silica. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the supplementary cementitious materials that we tend to use are waste products from burning coal. Uh, now, okay, we can say we don't care about that. We can also say there are technologies out there that can make supplementary cementitious materials in a new way. That's great. That's all true. So right now, the you know global average of blending is about 65%, 35%. Mm -hmm. If we could somehow 
you know, invent new materials or new ways to make the same materials, we could probably increase that to 50-50 without too much hardship on yeah. the construction industry. And we could, you know, depending on the carbon intensity of making those supplementary cementitious materials, you know, de reduce the CO2 emissions between five and 15%. So that's, that's, that's another, another, I think that's, and I actually think that's a very good strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another strategy is carbon capture and sequestration. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is one that assuming that the carbon capture and sequestration works, right. Definitely decarbonizes cement. There's no question. Yeah. Fortunately it has, CCS has no value in the current global economy. So this is one of those solutions where we have to change what the global economy values in order for the solution to be valuable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the hard step, right? Mm -hmm. And to put that in perspective, right, to, if we were to decarbonize the entire global economy, then we would have to wait about 100 years for the Earth to reach equilibrium again with the yes. CO2 in the atmosphere. And then we would start... You know, and by that point, we would be in a new steady state anyway, because there'd be less sea ice and, 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 and less land ice. So there'd be less albedo and those things maybe wouldn't come back. And there's, you know, there's hysteresis and all these sort of complicated things. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like, anyway, in a hundred years, we'd start to see, you know, a more stable climate. Right? Mm -hmm. And the current thinking is like the cost of CCS, you know, maybe it's, hundred dollars per ton maybe it's 150 dollars per ton something like that maybe that could go down to 50 dollars a ton maybe i don't know right now if we were to you know and 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 like put that in perspective right there are let's say it's a hundred dollars per ton there are about four billion tons of co2 emitted in the cement industry right so that if we charged everyone in the world fifty dollars a year we could decarbonize a cement industry which we would see basically no benefit from ever unless the entire global economy was also decarbonized. Mm -hmm. However, if we were to charge everyone in a low-income country $40 a year, we could install catalytic converters on every motor vehicle, and in a matter of days, the smog problem in low-income countries would go away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that. <laughs> so it's hard. it's really hard for me to imagine that we're going to charge everyone in the world $50 a year for something that doesn't have any benefit for for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Right. It, that just, it, it seems mind boggling to think that we would actually do that. Like I could see us doing it, you know, in the same places that we put catalytic converters on our cars, right. In high income countries, mm -hmm. which maybe will be everywhere in the world in a hundred years, but mm -hmm. that's a little late for the climate problem. So it, I, I just don't think, that, I, I, I just don't think that low income countries are going to, have a carbon tax mm -hmm. uh, and it's impossible to produce, you know, in a high tax environment in a high income country and then ship to a low income country and mm -hmm. it'd still be lower cost. Right. So you just like CCS, you know, that's a political problem. And I think, you know, it, and it seems like a really, really big one since it's a yeah. global political problem. So I, I don't think that there's a ton of, I don't think there's a big chance that that's, that strategy is going to, is going to work. Although I hope it does. Right. I, I would like decarbonization to happen. Okay. So, the, ne the next strategy is the same strategy as everyone is, is trying to use clean energy. And the first type of clean energy that everyone thinks of is, is, is electrification. Yeah. Right. So there's this huge misconception, uh, and in case any of your listeners have this, like that electricity, that certain things are too hot to electrify, like certain temperatures are too high to electrify. Mm -hmm. That's actually exactly the opposite of what's mm -hmm. true. Right. If you want really high temperatures, you need to use electricity. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't because electricity is really expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay, like put that in perspective. So I, I I know the numbers in the United States off the top of my head. So talking about retail prices for electricity, the retail price for ele for electricity, or the 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 average retail price for electricity for heavy industry in the United States is seven cents per kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. That means that you know the the highest is in Hawaii and it's like 38 cents per kilowatt hour and the lowest is either in Iowa or Washington state depending on the year and that's five-ish cents per kilowatt hour and that's so that's the price of electricity if you want to do something with it mm -hmm. 
uh, the price of heat, right? So the retail value, for example, for coal from the Powder River Basin in Wyoming is 85 cents per gigajoule. Mm -hmm. And what that equates to is about 0.03 cents mm -hmm. per kilowatt hour. Right, so that is, what, 15 times cheaper than the cheapest retail electricity value in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's just an average value that, that's cheap, that's, yeah. that, that is that much cheaper, right? So the, the reason why folks in the cement industry and every other heavy industry use heat and not electricity is because we have a global econo economy that values cost mm -hmm. and is a lot cheaper to use heat than is electricity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there are folks that argue that say, look, solar and wind have the cheapest levelized cost of energy. That's true. Or that's actually not true. They have the cheapest levelized cost of electricity, right? And that's three or four cents. And with subsidies or in the right location, you can get that down to one cent. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's intermittent, right? So for, if you, like for a conventional cement plant, for example, the capex of a cement plant is thirty or forty dollars per ton of cement. Just the capex. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could only power that cement plant on renewable electricity, right? Not only would you increase the cost of your energy by you know three or five times, but you would also have to increase the size of your cement plant by two to five times to deal with the intermittency of the electricity, so you could make mm -hmm. the same amount of cement. Mm -hmm. So it's actually much more expensive to use renewable energy than it is to to use sort of 24 hour grid energy, mm -hmm. which is all, all to say basically that, you know, using electricity to make cement also requires also a political solution. Mm -hmm. And the bigger problem, and the even bigger problem is it only decarbonizes at most 40% of the cement industry, right? Because most of the CO2 emissions have nothing to do with, with energy. Yeah. So electrification, again, you know, we need to figure out how to, you know, you need to figure out how to value electricity differently. And so that's a, that's a political question. You could think about other clean forms of energy. I don't actually, you know, know, I don't really know of any, uh, you know, like there's, there's hydrogen, which is just a fancy version of electric electrification right now, or it's dirty, right? <laughs> there's, you know, nuclear, but as far as I know, it doesn't get hot enough yet. And it's also more expensive. You know, there's, there, there is solar, you know, direct sol use of solar intermittent. There's geothermal. It doesn't get doesn't get hot enough. Yeah. So anyway, decarbonizing the energy pieces is hard economically, right? That's, this is kind of a heat problem. And there, you know, I would also say like there are, there are companies out there that are trying to utilize, you know, the, the, the tails of, of renewable energy production, right? You, we have to curtail renewable energy production and therefore you get, you know, short periods of, of low cost energy or even free energy or even negatively priced energry. Once, once we start valuing so if we ever get battery storage online or any kind of electricity storage to use renewables, mm -hmm. then it will always make more sense to sell electricity as electricity. Mm -hmm. right? Electricity is the highest value thing. So I think that, you know, those tales like are our market phenomenon that will go away, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's, that gets kind of hard, but I, I would like to, I would really like to see a lot of those, those, those companies really succeed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then the last strategy to decarbonize, or, or not the last, because I haven't talked about ours yet, but the last that is not <laughs> ours, right, is using a new material. So this is, I think this is a great strategy, truly. And there are a lot of companies that have been doing this for a long time. And the idea is that, well, okay, we don't need to use cement. We, you know, cement is just like a, a pourable rock that hardens. You know, like we could use a different pourable rock that hardens. One that, you know, maybe doesn't emit so much CO2. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. I think we should, I think that's just smart. I think it's a little impractical in in that it doesn't acknowledge that the you know global system you know the 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 global construction system like is has trillions of dollars of of trained employees and equipment all around all around using ordinary portland cement based concrete mm -hmm. and then also <clears throat> there are cross compatibilities between ordinary Portland cement based concrete and other building materials. Like here, here are two of them that people classically call out, which is one concrete is reinforced with, with, with rebar, which is steel. Yeah. And in order to prevent the rebar from rusting, you need a very alkaline environment and ordinary Portland cement provides that other cements may not. Exactly. The other one is that or, the ordinary Portland cement based concrete and cement or excuse me, and rebar have the same coefficient of thermal expansion. So, mm -hmm. 
we know how to engineer these two materials together. Yeah. And if if they didn't, then we'd have to engineer things, figure out how to engineer things maybe radically differently so that on sunny days, you know, bridges didn't crack and fall down. Yeah. And you know, those those are just like a few of the numerous examples of cross compatibilities that we'd also have to figure out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you get into the much trickier regime of reg. So because of that, we have regulation, which says regulation, you have to use ordinary Portland cement. <clears throat> and regulation aside, like that's still not the hard problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the hard problem is convincing folks to use the material. So if I'm a structural engineer and I have to build a building yeah. and I have the choice of using a material that every building in the world has ever been built out of or a material that no building in the world has ever been mm -hmm. built out of. Mm -hmm. And if this building falls down, people will die. Money will be lost. I will lose my job, maybe go to jail. Then I, you know, the chances that I use that new material are very, very low. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And all of this is to say that new materials will take a long time to get into the market. Yeah. And some of that is appropriate and some of that is too bad, but it, it is all too bad in terms of decarbonization because I think it's like that there are lots of other materials that, you know, could be lower energy or lower emissions or just better in some way. And so that's too bad. Okay. So, now it comes to what we're doing. Uh, yeah. So, well, basically we decided after all of those things or, or talking to structural engineers or everything else is that we need to, in order to decarbonize cement, you need to make a product that is lower cost. You need to make a product that is zero carbon. And, 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 and those two things, I say those separately because it's, it's very important, right? You can make something that's zero carbon by saying we're going to use clean energy, but making, but actually having it be economical to use clean energy is a very different situation. Mm -hmm. So it has to be lower cost and it has to be zero carbon. And then finally, it has to be the same material. So this, you know, when we were first coming with the idea, we had those three things in our mind. We said, okay, well, that actually constrains the problem really well. We can answer this question whether or not it's possible. Yes. And I said, okay, well, it's a calcium-based material. Where's all the calcium come from? Uh, calcium is in basically three places in the world. It's in limestone, which is where it comes, cement's made mm -hmm. today. It's in gypsum, where cement has previously been made out of, except for the byproduct that CO2 is sulfuric acid, so that's mm -hmm. hard to scale. And then it's in calcium silicate rocks. So we developed a process to make cement out of from calcium silicate rocks. Yes. And it turns out that our process as a co-product make those things that I talked about earlier called supplementary cementitious materials, which for a variety of reasons are scarce in the market. Mm -hmm. So when we put those things together, we think that our technology has a really good shot of being lower cost mm -hmm. than, than conventional product. And there's no CO2 in our rock. So we are we, we think that you know we certainly eliminate process emissions. And the question is, can we get our engineering good enough so that our energy consumption is low enough that we can actually be substantially lower carbon? And the good news on that front is that all of these rocks also contain magnesium and magnesium comes out of our product as a waste or out of our process as a waste product mm -hmm. and magnesium will passively sequester CO2. So when we look at our process and the energy consumption, you know, it sort of, it depends what you assume and what the rocks are. And, but in a lot of cases, it's actually carbon negative uh, on net, even, even using conventional energy mixes. Mm -hmm. So that's what we said is okay, clear clear pathway to being zero carbon or better, clear pathway to being lower cost, and we make the same product. This is an idea worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's a lot of engineering work, you know, and actually to make it to make it real and make it happen. But that's that's sort of the strategy that we're taking. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before that obviously you need to get all kinds of stakeholders involved and you need to get stakeholders on board willing to Oh, basically try out the new technology, the new sort of cement. So how, especially given that the quality standards are very, very high, also from a from a political level, how do you ensure not only that you meet those quality standards, but also that you get all the stakeholders basically approve the product and be willing to use it? Yeah. So like the key thing that's like different about us and other companies, right, is that we really make the same product. So mm -hmm. the existing, making the same product in a new way is something that's commonly done and really, really well understood. And we can, so we can just use those existing systems. So 
you know, I'll give an example in other industries and then I'll give an example in the cement industry. So right now, for example, steel is made via at least three different processes from at least three different starting materials. So you can recycle steel from steel using steel scrap as a starting material via mm -hmm. an electric arc furnace. You can then you can do direct reduction to make steel using natural gas typically, or you can do a basic oxygen furnace process, a blast furnace process mm -hmm. using Metco. And the starting materials from those two processes can either be hematite or magnetite, right, from different ores. Yet at the end of the day, we still get steel. And I'll give you because I'll give you another example. So in copper, right, we we make copper oxide, make copper from either copper oxide ores or copper sulfide ores. Mm -hmm. We use either a, an electro winning based process or a wet leaching hydrometallurgy and pyrometallurgy based process to make that copper. And at the end of the day, it's the same copper, right? Yeah. Cement, no different, right? So cement typically is made from limestone. There's a large period of time in Europe between like the forties and sixties, I think that it was made widely from gypsum, making sulfuric acid as a byproduct, but it's just made Portland cement. You make Portland cement. So all we're doing is so, and there's standards that define Portland cement. We know when we've made Portland cement and we know when we have it. Mm -hmm. uh, so our process just makes Portland cement or just use the different process, different starting material. We can know really well when we've made it. Right? And you could also know when you haven't. If we make Portland cement, it's the same material. No change in the downstream market needs to happen. So we actually have not had really any trouble, you know, convincing uh, other industries to use the product. I want to circle back to calcium silicate rock and really how you are able to scale these inputs. I have a question more about the location of this calcium silicate rock and like how you're actually extracting it. Like, is the extraction process something that's already available now? And then potentially where are these rocks located? And like, how does that input into your, your process scaling? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I talk about calcium silicate rock, I mean any rock that contains both calcium and silicon. <clears throat> I do not mean wollastonite, which is if you were to Google calcium silicate, probably you'd look at the the Wikipedia page for the chemical formula calcium silicate, mm -hmm. which is or 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 or, or monocalcium silicate or calcium monosilicate, depending on how you want to say it, um, which is wollastonite, which is very rare. We're talking about any rock that contains calcium silicon or generally silicate rocks that are that have calcium in them mm -hmm. these are rocks like basalt so it it turns out that calcium silicate rocks yeah are about 50% of the rocks in the earth's surface mm -hmm. and they're just surface quarried mm -hmm. and they're really really commonly surface quarried today mm -hmm. uh, for use as rock mm -hmm. <laughs> so it turns out if you have a rock that's 50% of the rocks on the earth's surface and you also have a global economy that mines you know 50 tons of or excuse me, 50 billion tons of rock every year. Every now and then we're gonna the gonna quarry calcium silicate rock. In fact, mm -hmm. quite a bit more frequently than every now and then. We yeah. we mostly quarry calcium silicate rocks. Yeah. So this the extraction process is is already fully there. Yeah. Now no one looks at these rocks for their calcium grade. The more calcium in the rock, the more product we can get get per ton of rock quarried. So it's very rare for there to be an existing quarry on a rock that works really well for our process. Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, we definitely, you know, just like with any normal cement process where we will likely need to set up or we would need to set up our own quarry for this mm -hmm. rock, uh, but it's not a, not an esoteric process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned, obviously we have the same product. You're able to source the materials that you need, able to scale it up. When we look a bit into the future, where do you see brimstone fitting into that relatively lengthy value chain of ultimately not only cement production but everything from sourcing to then also building constructing new buildings where do you see brimstone fitting in do you see you, you becoming basically a completely vertically vertically integrated cement producers like the Holtzons of the world or are you rather looking to partner up with them and try to use the existing facilities to decarbonize the sector yeah, it's a great question. So, and the answer is like, we don't really know what we're going to be when we grow up. <laughs> what we do know is that we want to work as fast as possible to decarbonize cement. And because our technology is like intrinsically lower carbon and ideally carbon negative, then our process 
the economics are aligned with us decarbonizing cement. Yeah. So growing as fast as possible is is the goal because that's that what allows us to decarbonize as fast as possible. We also know that no one wants to utilize our technology until they know it works, mm-hmm. uh, including us, right? <laughs> and we won't know it works until we build a full-scale plant and that full-scale mm-hmm. plant works yeah. because there's you know several levels of risk. So what we're you know going full speed ahead on right now is building a pilot plant. You know, when and if we successfully do that, we will build a larger plant and then we'll build an even larger plant, which will be full scale. And at that point, we can consider building our own plants or licensing the technology or mm-hmm. joint venturing with other groups and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, thinking about exactly what our strategy is going to be is putting, is, in our view, is just putting the cart in front of the horse a little bit too much. Yeah. Makes sense. I also want to briefly circle back to something that you mentioned that there are a lot of companies out in this this sphere. From my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's this really concentrated market power, you know, of the Heidelberg cements, the four, four main cement producers in the world. How does that concentrated market power affect innovation? You said that, you know, you're basically producing the same end product, but given their scale, given their, their existing processes, like how do you see that influencing them working with new companies like you? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I think that like, I, I, I kind of have a lot of speculation, right? You're, you're definitely right mm-hmm. that the market is incredibly consolidated. Mm-hmm. There are yeah, very few cement companies that own the majority of the market. And, and more than that, the cement industry is full of like regional monopolies because cement's pretty cheap. So it, doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't ship very far. So a lot of times there's one large cement plant that services, you know, a, a urban area and it is, there's another large cement plant, you know, 500 miles down the road and they don't really compete with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just serve their own areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there definitely seems to be like a, a high degree of, of non-competition just be, mm-hmm. because of the structure of the market. Mm-hmm. I'm not an economist. Like I understand that leads to, to minimal innovation. Yeah. It also... Yeah, it also, you know, can create circumstances where, you know, companies may, you know, because they feel pretty secure in their profit making scheme, they don't really want to rock the boat by attempting new technologies or, yeah. or acquiring yeah. new technologies and that sort of thing. So those are all things that I, you know, that sounds right to me, you know, <laughs> I don't, to be really honest with you, I don't really know. We, you know, no real cement company is like, really interested in nor would we really be interested in selling our technology before we know it works so it's kind of it's something that's sort of yeah it's kind of adjacent to us yeah yeah Yeah. you you mentioned the fact that you have these almost like local monopolies because obviously cement isn't being shipped far do you see for brimstone specifically that the us will be basically a home turf going for now, especially looking obviously at the IRA, looking also to to green up almost any sector. Is that, are those political decisions, these policy measures already things that you you look at and you say, okay, this this is fully not only fueling our, our research and our, and our development, but also will make us most likely stay for now in the US and look to scale here. Yeah, the biggest the biggest problem that we see in scaling up is access to capital, right? In order to build a cost competitive cement plant, we need, you know, a billion dollars to build it or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So the IRA has really got a long way to solving that problem mm-hmm. and they have just put a ton of money into into grant government grants and loans um for earlier stage technologies that normally banks would not fund. Mm-hmm. So because of the IRA yeah, I think we are we are heavily looking towards the United States. And we're not committed to the United States in any way. You know, we're going to do what's economically best for the country or for the, excuse me, for the company. Mm-hmm. So if new thing happens, then, you know, we'll do that. But the IRA is probably the most compelling thing that we've seen so far. Yeah. It's great. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about what the IRA does for cement. I mean, there, there's a lot of investment going into CCS, but... How much of a game changer is the IRA bill, in your opinion, for the cement industry, not only for these incentives, but also U.S. government coming out and saying, okay, this is a problem that we really need to be focusing on. As you mentioned, you know, it's it, it's really a political problem as well, you know, decarbonizing the, the cement industry. It is. Yeah. I mean, the cement industry is a really 
a really interesting one. Like, like I said, like there's there's almost no investment in it, and part mm -hmm. of that is education. Part of that is you know these structural barriers like regional monopolies and 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 that sort of thing that folks see it's a, a hard industry to break into, mm -hmm. uh, and they're right. You know? <laughs> the so, so I think the IRA goes a really long way. Like it it breaks down a lot of those barriers, like with both financing and education. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's like the. I mean, I think I think it's huge. I think like there's always more that can be done. Like yeah. you know, one of the things that that we've been fighting for a lot is advanced market commitments, mm -hmm. right? So uh, yeah. the government is the final payee of most of cement to build roads, bridges, government buildings, that sort of thing. Yeah. And right now, so it's kind of it's absurd to think that you know the government wouldn't need to be involved in 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 procurement. Yeah. And in order to get, if we need a contract in order to get financing. And we kind of need a contract from the government, right? There's just like there's no real other way. So, like, there's I think there's definitely more to be done, and we'd love to see some more work on advanced market commitments in some way. But in general, the you know beggars can't be choosers, right? The IRA is great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Mm, you obviously before you can get those government contracts or whatsoever, we capital needs to be needs to be raised early on. And you mentioned the fact that there is a lot of education missing around the topic of cement and, and the, the entire industry sector. Having raised from obviously a top tier climate tech investors, do you see that there's a shift in the, in the at least VC capital structure, uh, capital game that VCs are more and more interested in such topics in not only cement industry, but obviously such deep tech topics that require hardware investments have, have you have you seen a shift going on lately she you know <laughs> secret question <laughs> i would i would like to like to opine about the history of venture capital but like if i'm really gonna be <laughs> honest like i you know i think i came in at a pretty lucky time exactly. you know there was a you know pretty big boom in venture capital and that was all all very helpful mm -hmm. uh what people tell me is that good companies will get funded Mm -hmm. uh, I've I've got a horse in the game. I like to think Brimstone's a good company. I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't fully trust me on that because I've got you know I, I I like I said I have a horse in the game, but you know I think we have the right we have the right strategy that sort yeah. of you know could can, can fund.